Hello, educators and learners, and welcome to the Homeroom with Sal podcasts brought to you by Khan Academy. We're an educational technology nonprofit dedicated to bringing a world-class education to anyone, anywhere. Homeroom with Sal and Khan Academy Ed Talks are hosted by our founder, Sal Khan, and our chief learning officer, Kristen DeCerbo. I'm neither of those people. I'm Kevin Dangor. I'm on the engineering team, and I'm here to introduce today's show. These shows were first shared as live stream videos on our Facebook and YouTube pages as Sal and Kristen interviewed notable folks from around the world of education, technology, finance, entertainment, and more. We've taken some of our favorite conversations from the live show and turned them into a podcast. Without further ado, here is the latest episode. Excited to talk to Ned Johnson today. He has written three books. The uh, the one that I first learned about was the self driven child, his, and we'll be also talking about his his most recent book. What do you say? How to talk to kids? How to talk with kids to build motivation, stress tolerance, and a happy home. So, looking forward to our discussion. Hi, Ned. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I, I'm so so thrilled to talk through this with you, and and of course, uh, like anyone in education, big fan of the great work that the Khan Academy does in helping kids all over the place. So. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. I'd like to start discussions by asking people, what was your journey? How did you come to to work in this field of test preparation and education? Well, honestly, I graduated college without a really clear plan of what I was going to do. Uh, and I followed a, a friend to the DC area and I, I took a job with a local test prep company who said they were looking for folks who are good at standardized tests and like working with high school students. And I'd always been pretty good at standardized tests. And at that point was pretty nearly a high school student. And I thought, well, gosh, <laughs> I can give this, give this a try. And I just, I really fell in love with talking with teenagers. I just, it's such, um, Paul Tuff in his, his wonderful book, um, the, uh, the Years That Matter Most Now, the, the Inequality Machine talks about the first year of college, but I think it also applies to last year of high school, of, of sort of the uncertainty, what he describes as the belonging uncertainty. And so during those transitions, kids are vulnerable, they're vulnerable to stress, but they're also vulnerable to, to new ideas about themselves. Uh, and there's just something really cool for me, at least about working one-on-one -on -one with kids. And I'm, I'm, I'm not mom and dad, I'm not asking them to, to clean them up the room. I'm not a teacher giving grades. I'm just all about what, what trying to help them in all the ways that are meaningful to them. So I've been, I've been something like 50,000 hours one-on-one -on -one talking with oh kids uh, since, <laughs> since the early nineties. And uh, it's just, it never gets old. It's really cool. That is fantastic. So you write and talk a lot about stress. Let's I do. start there. Is is all stress bad? Are, are there should we think no. about stress in different ways at different times? Um, so so yeah. So um, first of all, all stress is not bad. I mean, classically, when we talk about stress. Um, what, there's something called the Yerkes-Dodson curve, which some of your educators may know about. And so it's a bell curve, it's a performance curve. And it's really measured in physiological arousal. So kind of what are those stress hormones, what are the neurotransmitters that are running through our bodies and brains? And if we have no stress, typically there's not much by way of performance. If you play against a team who's just terrible, you're going to win, but you're not going to play your best. At some point, you start to feel butterflies, right? But before a big game, before a big math test, you're trying to talk to somebody who thinks you're really cute. You, you should feel that because it, it means that you're paying attention. It means that you're primed for action. It means that you're ready. 
The challenge is that more isn't necessarily better. And so at some point, ah, then the performance starts to fall apart. And so what we're trying to talk about is what helps any of us, but especially kids, feel like in their place of what's known as optimal arousal. You're, you're, you're amped up enough to be excited, but not so much that you kind of lose your mind. That makes sense. It aligns to, I've also read some uh, about the impact of stress hormones on memory and that a low, some level of stress hormones can actually help you remember more, but then it gets too high and then you lose Well, that, yeah, and especially, you know, impact. one of the things that, so my, my co-author, uh, William Stickstreet is a, is a clinical neuropsychologist. So he often works with kids where, where things, things aren't going well, you know, learning isn't easy, attention isn't easy, maybe emotion regulation isn't easy. And both for him as a, as a neuropsychologist, me and as a test prep geek, we would submit the most important outcome of high school is not where you go to college. And I know my, all my clients are like, what, what? But seriously, it's <laughs> developing the brain that kids are gonna carry into college and then, and then to adulthood. And cortisol, the dominant stress hormone, again, we need enough of it to kind of get us out of bed in the morning, but too much, it erodes the hippocampus, the major memory center of the brain. It weakens the connection between the prefrontal cortex, you know, the kind of thinking part of our brain and, and the amygdala. And if you're too tired and too stressed for too long, very bad things happen to developing brains. And we just don't want to see young people, particularly teenagers who are really sculpting the brains that they'll carry into adulthood. We just don't want to see them be stressed all the time. Find to have intensity, work hard, relax hard. Work hard, relax hard. That's kind of, just like working out, that's how you get stronger. And we want kids to have that experience. But if they're, if they're constant like this all the time, just not, not good for developing brains or for test performance for that matter. <laughs> right, right. So what are signs that someone is too stressed and that those stress levels are too high? Oh, golly. I mean, you know, there are all sorts of symptoms when you talk about, you know, diagnosed anxiety. I mean, you know, so, I mean, it's it's the word they're t the words they're using. It's it's the the constant fretfulness. It's you know perfectionism run amok. It's difficulty sleeping. It's difficult with appetite. You know, with, with depression. I mean, I'm not a clinical psychologist, but but you, you know, the, I would if you're if you really have a kid who you're worried about mental health, just go you know go to some of the websites that you know that that, that will talk about these things. But classically, you know, but it, assuming that's just garden variety anxiety, right? Which which we all experience to a degree. But I really had become interested in, you know, for years, kind of what I think of as underperformance. So, you know, when I first started doing tests, but again, I was always pretty good at these tests. I was trained really well on how to talk about these tests, but I kept having the experience of really bright, you know, kids from their great families, their great schools, they did all the hard work and they go and take the test and go, boosh. And typically I'd get an irate <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. We did all the time. Why am I? I didn't know. I didn't. You know, I didn't know anything when I was 23, 24 doing this. But I was fortunate enough that parents would send their kids back and we'd have another another conversation. And so I'd ask them, you know, did the proctor goof up the time? Was the kid next to you distracting you? Know, you know what what it looked like. And almost always the conversation would end with something like, I, I don't know. It just it was. It, they, they were so much harder than what we did for practice. I said, oh, oh okay, that makes sense. No, wait, wait a second, wait, 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 wait. For all the reasons that people may not like the SAT or may not like the ACT, you know, and just don't like standardized tests generally, you have to give them this. 
They're standardized. So the idea, right, that this test that they took was so fundamentally different than what they'd done for the you know books of practice test just didn't make a lot of sense. So I went to go and take the SAT at a local public high school, and I'm 25, 20, you know, I was probably five years into being the test, but I was late 20s. So I'm sitting there with all these teenagers and kind of eavesdropping. I'm like, what's going through their heads? And, you know, are they nervous or are they anxious? Whatever. And this is, a, I wrote a book years ago about, a, 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 called Conquering the SAT, about anxiety and, and test performance. And for no particular reason, I checked my own pulse. It's a hundred, it was 140 beats a minute. 140 oh beats gosh. a minute. Which is like running up and down the stairs 15 times. And I thought, this is curious because I didn't think that I was nervous. And... I have very few identifiable skills, but one of them is that I've always been good at standardized tests. So like, and I didn't need it because I wasn't going back to college. Like what was going on? And so a lot of times kids will be super well performed, prepared in the Obama math test or the SAT or whatever it happens to be. And we look around and assume, well, you didn't study hard enough, right? You know, or maybe you're just not that good. You're not as smart as you thought you were. That's a thought that helps nobody, right? That the tutor's no good, the program's no good. And that those are all things that we might want to consider. But in some ways, if we take seriously the fact that, that, that test anxiety is rooted in, in neurochemistry, it doesn't, part of us, what we work to put hard and work hard to put into kids' brains, that if under too much pressure or perceived stress, they lose their minds, then it all goes for nothing. Um, so I would say um, when, when things are unexpected is the way that I would look for anxiety, right? If a kid is um, really, you know, is taking this seriously, we have sense of that they've demonstrated the abilities in other ways and just class discussion or essays or whatever. How do they perform when there isn't pressure versus how do they perform when there is pressure? And if there's a big disconnect there, then we start thinking about how do we get more comfortable with that perceived pressure or, or, or find ways to down, to kind of ratchet down the perceived pressure of that activity. That makes sense. Uh, thinking about that unexpected performance that doesn't align with what you see in other kinds of settings and other kinds of ways that they've demonstrated what they know. Right All right, that. so how do we help them ratchet that down? What does that look like? <laughs> Well, there's, there's one place to start. There's um, wonderful research by a woman named uh, Sonia Lupien, who sent, heads the Center for Studies of Human Stress. I think I got that right in Montreal, Canada. And she has a beautiful acronym of what makes people nuts. Okay, so nuts, N-U-T-S. So N is novelty, so new situations. So hey, it's not just the coronavirus, Chris. <laughs> it's, the, it's the novel coronavirus, right? If you're taking a test and you're like, I've never seen that before, it's never a happy thing, like if you're shopping. U is unpredictability. So for the work that I do in standardized tests, you know, am I going to have enough time or not? If you know that you won't have time to do three questions, no matter what you do, well, that's great to know. Then we figure out which three questions do we just not do, right? We just fill in those answers. T is per perceived threat. And so pre-COVID for most kids and per for most of us, and particularly for kids in school, that's threat to ego. Am I going to look stupid? Are people going to think I'm an idiot? You know, do am I going to think? Are my parents going to think? Are my teachers going to think? And then S is a low sense of control. And it turns out this is what the, the book that Bill and I wrote in The Self-Driven Child is that a low sense of control is the most stressful thing that people can experience. And so novelty and predictability, you know, this is one of the great things about, about the Khan Academy is you could have a great teacher, awesome, and never need to, you know, spend your time with Khan. Or you could have a teacher, you've had three teachers in chemistry this year because, well, COVID, right? And if you feel like I'm responsible for doing well in this, but I have no way to learn this, Oh, 
oh, that's really stressful. If you know that there's a tool, it's not, gosh, you'd rather learn this at 10 o'clock in the morning with a wonderful teacher, but that's not where we are right now. Where we are right now. So if we think about in a given situation, how much of it is the novelty? How much is it that you feel threatened? How much of you feel low sense of control? And we tack those things in, in turn. I can talk very credibly about the values that you, the, that you can find in standardized tests, but I can also talk until I'm blue in the face about all the ways that the SAT is, is a terrible test and they're a bunch of ragamuffins. And I, and I do that with kids to decrease the stress that they feel about. Say, look, you may need to take this test for the college that you're applying to, but let's, let's, let's disabuse ourselves of the idea that this is measuring something innate like your intelligence. Because golly, for most kids, that makes them super, super anxious. So that's kind of the first thing is we want to try to diagnose what's going on, right? I mean, a lot of kids I work with, they have an older sibling, right? Well, I'm sorry, sorry, your sister is an incredible person, but she did you no favors by getting a 1590 on the SAT and rolling off to <laughs> school. That's kind of intense, right? And so, yeah. so this is something that parents can do, that, that the teachers can do. And you try to figure out, you know, where, um, Tina Payne Bryson, if you, if you know, uh, you know, co-author of, of um, uh, The Whole Brain Child and a, and a lot of other great books, talks about stress is what we perceive when there's a gap between the perceived, the, the, what's being required of us and what we think we're able to do. And so we may want to decrease the demands on a person or increase the support. Now, there's some really fun research, and it's just hard for parents there, when they ask parents kind of what their expectations are of their kids. And then they also ask them, you know, and how much do you think they can actually meet those expectations? The wider the gap, the worse things get. And I just spent a lot of time with parents trying to talk them down for now these expectations that you have to go to Princeton. I love Orange, but really four years of Orange. I mean, it's not the only place in the world to go. Um, but it's, I mean, it's complicated. Kids are complicated. Parenting is complicated. Um, but that would be the first place that, that, I, that I would start. Um, I mean, we talk about a lot. I, mean, I spend the amount of money that I've been paid to talk with kids about sleep that I've, I have not been paid to be talking about sleep deprivation. I've been paid to help them, you know, prepare for these tests. But I talk, I, I can talk for hours about what sleep deprivation does. To brains, yeah. one to developing yeah. brains, but two from a performance. Just for folks who don't know, I mentioned a little while ago cortisol, which is the dominant stress hormone. When we're sleep deprived, the amygdala, the, the stress reaction, is about sixty percent more reactive, and our body's just pumping out cortisol. And so we're we're stressed all the time. There's a kid I was working with years ago. I mentioned Princeton. She had an older brother who went to Princeton. He was a baseball player. She was super academic, but found tests hard in part because she was just more stressed more easily than, you know, maybe her brother was. So we're doing the ACT and she has taken this test far too many times. And it's, we're meeting on a Sunday. She's taking a test the following Saturday. We're doing all the last room interview and she's an academic kid, great family. And I finally say, and remind her that, you know, if you can be in bed by 10 or 1030, you're going to do so much better on the test. Well, and I'm in the middle of this and her face falls. And I'm like, what? And she's like, well, <laughs> my friends and her friends are great. And they're super important to her. She's a 17 year old girl. I get that. I said, I understand. I understand. But for one week, could we maybe just like, you know, just hang it up, put the phone in the kitchen to go to bed early? Maybe. So what if your, what if your mom paid you to go to bed? She's like, my mom wouldn't pay me. I'm like, what if I paid you? She's like, what? 
And I said, oh, but I don't trust you. So your mom's in charge. You have to hand your phone to your mom at 10 o'clock. And if your bed lights up, I'll give you 20 bucks. And she said, for, 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 you know, for, for, for the week, I said, I'll give you $20 every night. She said, no, you won't. I said, yes, I will. She said, no. I said, watch me. She shows up on Friday. We have one last more to do. And I hand her five $20 bills. Now, this is wealth redistribution. It was really her parents' money. And she goes off and gets the test. I mean, she, and she had always been capable. She could have probably done this months ago if she could have been less stressed. So sleep deprivation is a big deal. Um, there's a wonderful book. I'll hold this up called Choke. It's a, it's a provocative title if you know this. This is Cyan Bialik. She's now the president of Barnard College. She is incredible. Love, love, love her work. And she looks at underperformance, public speaking, athletic standardized tests. And one of her models is the idea of having the mindset of a predator rather than of prey. Because the prefrontal cortex, decision-making, planning, problem-solving, emotional mental flexibility, all executive functions of the prefrontal cortex, the amygdala, the freeze, fight, or flight response, you don't want to freeze, you can't run away, and there's nobody to bite right in the middle of a test. So we really don't want that part of our brain going off. And she says, if you lean in with what she describes as just kind of having more swagger, you're gonna, it can help you perform better. So I actually did, I got, I did a TikTok thing in the day to shoot me now. I know old people in TikTok, but whatever. And so I stumbled on this great research at NIH that found this of executive functions. We know that stress really messes with executive functions, being anxious, bad, bad, bad. But you know what doesn't? Being angry. So if you're worried about the SAT or your math test or whatever, if you're like, those ragamuffins, I hate them, you're better off being angry than you are being anxious because you'll actually think better. So there's that. So um, interesting. You have more so, questions. Yeah, I have, I have so another one I'll talk about in a minute, but please jump in. Yeah, no, that was great. So you talked about um, lowering the, you know, lowering the threshold. When we think about teachers, right. We have a, right. a question that that came in thinking about um, from from Aviv. What are the actions teachers can take to help their students prepare for that stress of assessment? So even if we're not talking SAT, we could be talking classroom. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's the great part. Is I mean, things that teachers can do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there 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 there's several things. I mean, first of all, the, um, there's a wonderful study that that when we when when students, I think they were taking a GRE, I can't remember, but this of course applies to all tests. When they were when kids were test takers were reminded that some anxiety, back to that bell curve, actually improves their performance. Right? That actually you, you want to have some butterflies before the test. That actually helps you focus. That improved their performance because then they weren't worried about being worried worried. They felt what they're feeling right. physiologically. They felt as this is me preparing, you know, to go do battle, right? That's super helpful. Um, the same Sonia Lupian of the nuts. One of the things that she talks about this incredibly useful to like the, probably the single best tool to lower stress is plan B thinking. I am so happy for test optional. I can't even tell you because it lowers the stress. You know, of course, you would love to get a 1500 because who wouldn't? And apply to friends, fantastic, right? Because you look great in orange, I'm sure. But goodness <laughs> knows, you know, if you don't get a 1500, we know what you can do. You can still apply to Princeton, you know? And you know what happens if you don't go to Princeton? They're like 3,500 colleges where you can also get, you know? And so, and so we have to, in order to talk about that plan B thinking, a, a teacher really needs to have a good relationship with the kid, lest the, the, the kid feel like you're trying to say, you're saying I can't do this. Not what I'm saying at all. 
I'm saying that it will help you if, right? Um, from a stress perspective, Bill and I, in the, in the self-driven child, we talk about the, uh, the chapter in the book called a non-anxious presence. And I wish we'd made this up because it's such a good term. We borrowed this from a guy named Edwin Freeman who's a rabbi. He was a consultant. He worked with schools and churches and synagogues and families. And he simply made the point that things work better when the person or people in charge aren't overly emotional, aren't overreactive. And because stress is contagious, and the, but the good news is this, all emotions are contagious. Calm is contagious. We discovered this one. Calm is contagious is a mantra of the Navy SEALs. So when, if your kids come to you and they're super spun up, right? If you can say, you know, um, Eli Leibowitz, uh, uh, the guy, um, um, professor about, of anxiety, what's called the space program, we'll go into it, at Yale, talks about making supportive statements. And supportive statements are simply saying, yeah, Ned, I, I get that this is really hard for you. I can see that you're, you're pretty stressed out about this. And I have every confidence that you can deal with this. I'm confident you can handle this and I'll help you in any way that I can. Because so often we try to say, oh my gosh, it's not such a big deal, Chris. It's just, oh my gosh, and you have three years from now, who will even care? Well, I'm trying to help you, but I'm really invalidating what you're feeling. And you're feeling what you're feeling for whatever reason. But we also say, I have every confidence that this is going to work out. And if it doesn't work out just the way you want, we can do this. And I bet you can do this. And you're going to figure out a way to make this work, even if it's a plan B. So, you know, we, in, in our new book, What Do You Say?, we, use, we have a lot of scripts there, a lot of language, because it's hard as a teacher when kids come at you with things and they're super spun up and your heads are thinking, oh my goodness, oh, wait, 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 time out. We, don't, we could be seeing this differently. But what we're really trying to do is get, thank you, yeah, that's the book, um, Bill Sticks, Your Genius. What we're really trying to do is get buy-in in order to have kids be open to our messages. We really just start with empathy and validation. It makes sense to me that you're pretty stressed out about this SAT. It feels like a big deal. I, it makes sense to me. You know, I, I can get that you're, you're pretty feel pretty intense about this test coming right now because there is some hard there is some hard stuff on that. But I'm confident that you can handle this. So, um, you know, <laughs> I don't want to put one more thing on the backs of teachers who are feels like they're shouldering the weight of the world right now. But but I will say that. If there's any single thing that is valuable to young people right now, it's having a close connection to one or more adults. If there's a silver bullet against the effects of stress on developing brains, it's feeling it's feeling close connection to, to an adult. Ideally, that's parents. When we were writing the, this book, we asked we were meeting with all this, these kids, and we asked them, "Who do you feel closest to in the world?" Sometimes it was mom, sometimes it was dad, but sometimes a grandma, my aunt, my uncle, sometimes a teacher. I'm sitting in, in right now in Washington, D.C., and right across the street from us is Wilson High School, kind of the big public high school uh, in Northwest. Terrific school, great learners. Um, and we're working with, we were talking with a bunch of these kids. And this one, and so in the follow-up question, we said, what, what about those people makes you feel close to them? And, and there are two things. One, they listen to me without judging. And two, mm -hmm. they don't tell me what to do all the time. So this boy went on to talk about this biology teacher who was just like this fount of wisdom and calm. He, she wasn't his teacher. She wasn't his teacher. She'd never had him as a teacher. He'd never had her as a teacher, excuse me. But she was just yeah. known as the person and all these kids would just come in there and they would just have lunch with her. And she just asked him about their stuff and I'm sure they told her some crazy stuff. And, and, and literally just being a person where you can go, oh, that's interesting. Now, tell me more about that. Um, 
because it's incredibly valuable for lowering stress and for developing motivation. We can talk about motivation if you want, but I'm an enormous fan of what's called, we are enormous fans of what's known as self-determination theory. And it's a model for intrinsic motivation. You probably, I know you know all about this. I, I, yes, right. go ahead and explain yeah. it. I'm um, a big fan too. But, but, <laughs> but the idea that, you know, so often we think, you know, parents, teachers, school systems, politicians, we've got to get kids to work hard. Well, from my perspective, I have zero interest in kids working hard. I have interest in their wanting to work hard because extrinsic motivation of fear or bribes, they work for a while, but it's a terrible way to grow up with a brain simply trying to meet other people's expectations of you. What we really want is kids to do the work, right? Um, Jess Leahy, you know, of the gift of failure and people I know love her work. I saw a talk she was giving and she said, was talking with a bunch of teachers and asked them, and this one teacher said, you know what the three R's of, of teaching are? Relationships, relationships, relationships. And so good teachers are worth their weight in gold because they don't get kids to work hard. They get kids to want to work hard. Like when I, whenever I meet with kids, the first, yeah. you know, the first day is trying to understand them as a learner. Like what's your favorite class? What's your least favorite class? Oh, you love math. Is that the, is that the class or is that the teacher? And as you can imagine more than half the time it's, oh, you know, it's pretty good. But oh, Miss Rodriguez, she's just, I don't know. She makes it so interesting. And part yeah. of that is that she makes the math interesting, but that she's interested in them, right? And so again, yeah. I just, you know, I wish, I wish teachers, <sighs> I wish teachers had more autonomy. I wish they had less on their plates so that they just, it was easier for them to put as much time and energy as they wanted to there in, re in the relationships. Because for anyone who's an old fart like me, when you think back about the class that you love most, I can remember, <laughs> I can remember so little of what we learned, but I can remember Mr. Braverman and just how much I love this guy as a history teacher. I took zero history in college, but I loved him as a teacher, right? And that's what yeah, great teachers yeah. do, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's take one more question from YouTube. Um, the handle math with TGA says, how do I clear my mind after a big failure? So you can imagine you've failed at something, you know, that causes a lot of stress. How do you get over that and go for that, you know, what the next steps are gonna be? Well, gosh, I mean, one thing there's um, uh, Lisa Demore, if you, if you know, I, I love all these people. I mean, she's she, she's she a previous and, and talks guest. Oh, I just <laughs> love her, you know, and she makes the point that mental health is the right feeling for the right situation. So if you really worked hard at a test and you feel like you bombed it, you're allowed to be upset, right? You shouldn't be saying, I shouldn't be upset. Look, you're allowed to be pissed. You're like, gosh. And I really worked hard on that. But we then have to move on, right? What the, the real challenge is when people get locked in rumination, they beat themselves and beat themselves up and beat themselves up and beat themselves up. And what we want to try to do is if you go back to that plan, be thinking, what else can I do? Now, the reality is, I love this idea. This is a success coach I follow in the 80s who made the point that unexpected success and unexpected failures those are what provide the source material for great insights on your own life. So it's worth trying what happened there, right? So talk to your math teacher, talk to your friends, compare notes, reflect. Was I really well prepared? You know, did I, was I well rested? What was going on? What, what, what was my subjective state? What did it feel like going in there? I mean, I feel that, that kids every year in school, and I don't know what, what grade the student is in, 
we should have to work harder. We should re-engineer ourselves as learning because if you're not having to do things more or differently in 11th grade than you did in seventh grade, like boy, a lot of people's time is being wasted here, right? Um, there's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book called Make It Stick. It's Henry Rodiger, the third and a bunch of people. Um, it, there's a, if, you, if you send out notes afterwards, he has, they have, they, I forget the other authors, I just know his name, um, Michael Brown, I think, David Brown, somebody Brown. They have a fantastic piece in psychology today with basically the six takeaways from Make It Stick. And it's things you know all the stuff. It's spaced learning. It's sleep. It's it's um, um, the testing effect, right? So retrieval practice. Mm -hmm. So we don't just look at our notes. We actually kind of test ourselves. There's a lot of great stuff there. And so it's worth when I think about underperformance on tests, you know, math tests, SAT, and that kind of thing. I try to think about was it the input or was it the output? Meaning, did did I test myself in ways that I know that I really learned it? And if I, because if I just think I had a, I, I knew it, it might've been a little trick my brain was playing on me, in which case I want to examine how it is that I'm learning. Was I just cramming it? But if I really knew the stuff and I underperformed, well, then it's a performance piece, right? So we're back to, you know, what blows up cortisol? What helps you get your, you know, swagger on, right? You know, what gets you like Hulk smash mode when you take the test, right? <laughs> Listening to music. Um, I'm a huge, uh, the number of students who, to whom I have prescribed the, the seven minute workout. You know, um, Sonia, the, if people don't know this, um, it's, it's seven, it's 12, six, 30 second exercises that you can do anywhere. You need no exercise equipment at all. You need a chair because, oh, if we go back to Sonia Lupin, yeah, I love her. She's just a genius. She says the four methods of emergency stress relief are these laughing, singing, deep breathing, and vigorous exercise, right? Well, laughing and singing probably aren't too available to you during the test. You know, maybe beforehand, vigorous exercise, for sure you can do this. In Paul Tuff's book, he has a, the chapter, he's a whole chapter about me. I won't go into a long story, but basically showing up in this girl's, <laughs> going to her house and doing soul cycle with Ned, it's a wackadoodle story. At like 6.30 in the morning of an ACT, it's, it's bonkers. And, and to blow off the cortisol, super academic, super tightly wound. I couldn't get her to sleep more. And just, she sort of gassed herself for 20 minutes, took a shower. I went away and got the score because, because too much cortisol. She was just on the wrong side of that bell curve. Um, and then the deep breathing is a big thing. Um, people probably know the box breathing that the Navy SEALs created. I mean, these are people who have, you know, probably high intensity <laughs> performance anxiety, right? And deep breathing purges cortisol out of our nervous system and brings it back to normal. I mean, I, pre-COVID, I was still taking the SAT shoulder to shoulder with teenagers, you know, just to know what it feels like. And I can sit there and feel my pulse is still going like crazy because I'm an old guy in a room full of teenagers, like that's weird, right? But I want to know what it feels like. And I sit there when I'm filling in my address, I do deep breathing and it brings me back down. I'm not all tranquilo, but I'm in this place where I'm amped up, but not, not crazy. Um, so again, I think of the input and testing to really know the stuff, look up, make it stick. It's wonderful. But then if you really know that you learned it well, then we start thinking about these aspects of performance and it may be, and it may be a little bit of A and, and a little bit of B. Great. Great. We are just about out of time. I do want to, um, as you say, in your new book, you provide lots of scripts and things to ask. Let me ask you this question that comes up a sure. lot when talking to parents. How do I ask something that gets my kids to say, give me an answer other than fine? When I say, how are you doing? 
Fine. How is school today? Fine. How can we well, uh, encourage well, kids to express their emotions? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> oh golly. I mean, first of all, it, it's probably helped for us to remind ourselves that teenagers especially, part of their work to become adults is to individuate indi individuate from mom and dad, right? So they're, they're, they're supposed to push away from us a little bit, right? And so they, they run away and then they come back and run away and come back. I mean, a few thoughts. The first is, for the love of Pete, please ask them about things other than school because so many kids feel like, you know, I, there's an article I'm still wanting to get in, you know, some paper, you know, that we ask, basically add us, um, hmm, let's think here. How is school? How are your grades? Where are you applying to college? Do you have a boyfriend or girlfriend? As though that's the sum total of their experience, right? So if you're getting the if you're getting the fine, stop asking. Stop asking about school. Okay, but I have a, a, a specific thing that I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, you know, ask about kind of everything else, particularly asking about their hobbies. What are they interested? You know, politics, every everything else in the in the world. Um, also, if you have a kid where there's a, you know there's a problem, you know. They don't have friends at school, right? They're, they're having a hard time. Math is a hard thing. When we keep asking about the thing that's a problem, we're kind of interviewing for pain. We're looking, you know, and because in many ways, what parents I think are trying to do is they really just want to be told that it's okay. So they don't have to worry about this. But in this situation, you're being the opposite of a non-anxious presence. You're feeling like I have to check over and over and over and make sure that went okay. Just like, did you do your homework? 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 Right. It's, it's putting all the energy into that. Right. Where what was for lunch today? What was the weirdest thing that happened? What's going on? I mean, you know, particularly with the last two years of COVID, you know, taking an interest in what your kids are watching at TikTok. Right. If you you know, if you want your kids to be open with you, try to ask them about things other than they give you information and then and they feel like they're going to be in trouble or they're going to be criticized for it. If it is, I love if you what's are the weirdest really, thing you saw today. That's fun. Yeah. That's fun. <laughs> and, and if you're, and if it is something in school, you know, so you know, so I don't know, you, you know, what was the what was the hardest thing that popped up in chemistry? What was the dopiest thing you saw? Try to make those questions a lot more specific because, yeah, if you ask how was school, of course they're going to say fine, because if they say well it was really hard, they feel like they're going to be interviewed or grilled about the thing. Well, what, wait a second, what, what do you mean you didn't do all this? They, they don't want to hear about this because this is really interesting to me. In, in writing this book, we realized that one of the things is that a lot of kids don't want to share the hard parts of school life friendships with their parents because they don't want to burden their parents. They don't want to get their parents upset. And they it's too much for them to deal with their parents' intense feelings on top of their hard feelings. So this is where so this is where kids say fine, even though we know it's not fine. So I will share this particular piece of advice if you have a kid where you know things are not fine, um, but you can't get them to talk to you. So I have a daughter who's a senior in high school, and she is a complicated bird. She is brilliant, 30 IQ points on dad, um, has had her share of dark things. The last couple of years have not been easy for her. And when she is unhappy, she just closes down, you know, she's, you know, with the kid in the, in the cave and she, and, and so the conversation will often look like they, you know, Hey kid, are, are you okay? That's what she does. She shrugs her shoulders. So I'm like, any, anything, any I can help with? And I'll ask two or three questions like that. And she's not giving it up. And in many ways, in many ways, these are her feelings. And 
These are hers to feel. It's not my responsibility. I know that sounds like a callous thing to do, but honestly, it's an important thing for young people to learn to be able to talk themselves out of hard feelings. If she can only get back to baseline because of me, I'm not doing my job as a dad. So what I've done with her is this, is validate and then offer support, right? And then step away and say, well, so boy, sweetheart, it sure looks like, you know, you had a day of it because I don't know what's going on, but you look really upset. If there's any way that I can help, please know, you know, if you want to listen, if you want to, if you want to, yeah, I'll do whatever I can do to help, right? Is that okay? Shoulder shrug. Here's the question I said, ask, is it all right if I circle back in about half an hour just to check in and make sure you're doing okay? Get the head nod. And I swear, every time I've done this, if I say I'll be back in a half an hour, in 20 minutes, she's bounced downstairs. If I say I'll come back an hour, she comes down in 40 minutes every single time. And she's just, and whatever cloud it is that's been in her mind has just passed. And not once have I found out what she was upset about. I knew she was upset. She knew she was upset, but she just didn't want to share. And so this is the way we as parents can, we offer support, we offer help for our, could be a lot of times for kids to know that we're there to help. Even if they don't take us up on the help, it's helpful. Thank you. I'm going to close on that. That seems like <laughs> that's an excellent note for us to to, uh, to leave on. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, really appreciated me. all the information you shared and uh, look forward to diving into the new book. I hope you enjoy it. I really appreciate it. Again, I, I love that you, I love that the Khan Academy is taking all of the, you know, the kind of technical stuff you teach everything and really trying to broaden it with, with, with some of the folks that I'm grateful. I'm grateful to be among them. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks all for watching today. We'll see you next time. If you want to hear more of Homeroom with Sal or Khan Academy Ed Talks, subscribe to this podcast and tell a friend. If you want to support the work we do here at Khan Academy, visit khanacademy.org donate. We're a nonprofit and we appreciate your financial support in making sure that our materials can reach as many learners as possible. That's khanacademy.org donate. That's our podcast, folks. Your hosts are Sal Khan and Kristen DeServo. This show is produced by our wonderful Khan Academy team, Stephanie Yamkovenko, Dan Tu, Irene Wang, Anthony Nelson, Felipe Escamilla, Irene Chen, David Reinstrom, and me, Kevin Dangor. Our intro theme is Time Flux by Revolution Void. Our outro theme is Onward by Poddington Bear. <laughs>